holidays and welcome to the yay this is reg clay and norman g this is the yay where we talk about life in the theater and the theater of life <laughs> we have a fantastic guest on our second half we just had a guest uh michael um michael wayne rice and now we have david moshler david how are you doing i'm doing great uh, David is uh, the director and founder of Awesome Orchestra. This, an, this is an orchestra company right here in the Bay Area, and uh, they focus on musicals and also just uh, um, orchestral pieces. I mean, you'll talk more about what, Why don't you tell us right now what is Awesome Orchestra? Sure. Awesome Orchestra is a collective of musicians and composers and arrangers uh, based in the Bay Area. We're based in Oakland, mm-hmm. and we're a nonprofit, and we... Our mission is to make orchestras as accessible as possible to our communities. Yeah, no, th- I think that's fantastic. And um, when we think about music, I mean, you know, we obviously have a plethora of, you know, rap and hip-hop or whatever, but how often do we hear the classics from, let's say, Mozart and Beethoven and and, and, all, and all of the others, and, and also easily accessible to us, not something that we have to pay, you know, um, you know a lot of money and dressing up fancily having to go to the San Francisco Orchestra, you know, Opera House and all that stuff. Yeah, that's, mm. that's sort of our, our main <coughs> thing is to think, our whole MO is sort of, you know, we're, we're an adventure-seeking orchestra. Mm-hmm. That's our tagline. <laughs> so nice. Thanks. So we think, like, what makes it adventurous? You know, how do you take people on an adventure with an orchestra? Yeah. The music that you play, mm-hmm. like more adventurous music, not just dead white guys. Mm-hmm. Um, playing music uh, in adventurous places, mm-hmm. not just in the concert hall that might be inaccessible. Um, playing with adventurous people and playing in an adventurous way. So yeah, uh, we do it by mostly holding these sort of what we call open sessions mm-hmm. throughout the year, usually once a month, um, that are mostly totally free to the audience mm-hmm. and players. And the players come together. It's sort of a flash mob, uh, pickup, pop-up orchestra yeah. that's... Um, Kind of a family-friendly block party, sort of. Yeah. And we'll play anywhere from BART stations to museums and libraries, National Night Out, and body mm. shops, Yay. and all sorts of, a million different venues all over the Bay Area. No, that's fantastic. And we'll learn more about the awesome orchestra. Uh, this is our second time doing it. We already had a yay, uh, so I'm feeling like I'm repeating myself. But uh, for those who did not hear the earlier one, how was your week? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, not, you know, I finished up my standardized patient. I think yeah. I've done my last modeling job. The mm-hmm. year is done, ready for the holidays. And now and you're so excited for 2020. Oh, yeah, Dexter. Flies. The boy flies Monday, 5 a.m. Monday to go visit his dad. I'm like, ooh, we get two weeks. <laughs> That's right. You you <laughs> and, Mara and Mara can just chill. Yeah. And Mara is a musician. She's a trombonist, right? She's a trombonist, yes. Yeah. Well, yeah. There you go. So, David, you know, maybe you can, if Mara's looking for a gig or, you know, she can... I, I, now she's a jazz. I, uh, I have found that mm-hmm. I, you know, whatever my area of complete incompetence is, it apparently includes trying to talk to her about gigs. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, the two of you are, are, you know, you you consistently find gigs, you and her. So. Yeah, and I get to know sometimes what gigs she's doing. Mm-hmm. Well, right on, <laughs> David. How how are you doing with the holiday season? I don't even know if you're uh, Christian or Jewish or. Or what have you? Um, sort of non-denominational. Okay. Um, grew up in the deep south, so yeah. mm-hmm. grew up going to church a lot, <coughs> yeah. and uh, eventually sort of found my way to the Unitarian Universalist Church, which is more non-denominational. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Depending on uh, you know what the each congregation was like, so 
also don't consider myself practicing, but was a member for many years. And, yeah. Um, there's a big Unitarian church in um, San Francisco. Uh, there's a bunch of San Francisco. There's a big one in San Francisco, and actually there's a very historic one in Oakland, not okay. far from there, just over uh, uh, downtown, just almost at West Oakland. Yeah. Uh, that's very historic, the, uh, one of the first one in Oakland, one of the first ones in the Bay Area. Nice. Um, been there several times and would lo- love to go more, actually. I mean, I love the I love the community. Yeah, but, um, yeah. So, yeah, but holidays are going well. I'm uh, going to go visit the family in North Carolina mm-hmm. uh, next week and getting ready to move, actually, from Berkeley to Oakland, as I mentioned. So yeah. What, what part of Oakland? I'm going to move to Grand Lake, just uh, north of Adams Point. Oh, very nice. Um, yeah. Really nice space. Um, and I've, I've been at this place in Berkeley for a long time that I really love. Mm-hmm. It's rent control, which is <coughs> awesome. But yeah. Uh, just getting ready to move in with my partner. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Yay. Congratulations. I do, thank you. I do so much stuff in Oakland now that yeah. that's sort of the center where Awesome Orchestra is and other things that it's nice. To, it'll be nice to uh, actually be there, too. Yeah. Where I can imagine. You, where are you moving to? Uh, I was in South Berkeley, uh, oh, just okay. north just north of Timiskel, right sure. over the border. Yeah. Um, but So, yeah, not a big move for me. Yeah. Uh, but uh, first time in – I've been at this one place for eight years, and I've been in Berkeley hey. for ten years. So yeah. I yeah. could tell. I could tell people who are listening to the podcast like, oh, you know, um, <laughs> maybe I can talk to him to get that place. <laughs> I know how sure. folks think. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, you know, when, no, uh, hopefully, no one's going to blow you up as, as far as that's concerned. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so that's what's going on. Um, you know, the holiday season. This will be our last podcast before Christmas. So you know, everyone. No, we got the twenty eighth. Oh, th- well, th- yeah, that's after Christmas though. Oh, after Christmas. Yeah. 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 <laughs> before the year. In the year. Right. Right. Exactly. Um, well, we talked about current events. Um, you know, we talked about impeachment. Uh, I had mentioned, you know, impeachment is a very strange thing. Of course, there were four impeachments, or at least four impeachments hearing in our history. Right. Andrew Johnson, uh, Nixon, uh, Bill Clinton, and, of course, now Trump. Right. And um, there have only been two who have actually been uh, impeached. impeached. Yeah. Right. Um, and it's one of those weird things where, okay, you're impeached, but what does that mean? You know, he's – you know, Trump is like, oh, You're well. You're censured is, is really all it means, right? Well, it's sort of like – I mean, it's not like he's um, he's censored. I mean, it's – It's like being indicted. Well, it's being indicted, and, of course, you know, those charges will go to the Senate for, right. you know um, – it's, it's A almost trial. For a trial to be removed from office. But mm-hmm. a lot of people think he's not going to be removed, and no one yeah. has been removed from office right. in, in yeah. American history. So. Right. A lot of people are saying, well, you know, what's the big deal or whatever. So it's – I just find that, that fascinating that, you know, impeachment really doesn't harm the president if it's not – if it doesn't, in, you know, indict him. It embarrasses him. I've heard it's it, a stain. I've heard it. It's, it. Mostly it's kind of a shadow that falls on the rest of their career. Right. And after Clinton was impeached, uh, he was, it was sort of a lame duck period for the rest of his mm-hmm. – Right. And, of course, he would have been lame duck uh, either which way. Uh, you know, there yeah. was a lot of controversy with Kenneth Starr and right. the whole Paula Jones thing. You right. know, these are things that happened prior to him being yeah. president right. until they got the evidence about Monica Lewinsky. Right. It's so fascinating. If it hadn't been for that dress, right. he could have been denying it for forever and ever. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Do you well, have any thoughts? Weirdest, no, go ahead. Well, all I was going to say is um, it may not take him down. Mm-hmm. It looks like it's going to take the party down. I was saying on the earlier one. Yeah. Um, I want to <coughs> see if somebody's keeping a list of how many of these um, current, yeah, you know, sitting um, members, members of the of House, Cong- of yeah. House and and the Senate, yeah, who are up for election are opting not to. We've got so many incumbents 
who have opted that they're retiring or they're just not going to run, and another one just announced this week. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of it's a numbers game, you know. You and of course the Repu- a lot of these Republicans who are totally on Trump's side, you know, they do it because their cons- constituencies are on Trump's side. Yeah. It's so different from how it was in '72. Yeah. yeah, in the House. Well, I mean, you hear it from the Senate as well, but in '72. You had a Republican Party that said, I don't care how popular Nixon is. Right. And remember, Nixon won. I mean, if you look at the electorate map in 72, he won every single state except for one. Oh. I mean, J- McGovern was just totally decimated. Oh. Wow. But, I mean, if you look at it, I mean, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a sort of what a history was the state? buff. What was the state that didn't? McGovern, I think, it was, I think he's Massachusetts. I'm not sure. Oh, wow. <clears throat> but um, oh. he had a lot of problems. Uh, his vice president, Eagleton, had admitted to mm-hmm. – having psychological Mental, problems yeah, and yeah. even cried on camera. Yes. Uh, and, of course, America was very, very um, conservative right. at that time. Yeah. But even with that, you had a party that said, hey, listen, w- this is goes beyond the pale. We're not dealing with this. Mm-hmm. Today's Republican Party, they just don't care. Right. It, it just, it's just fascinating. Dave, do you have any thoughts about just the election, about Trump, about are you hopeful for 2020? I don't know what your affiliation is at all. No, it's um – I did not vote for Trump. And I'm <laughs> I said, never. Full yeah. disclosure. You know, again, I grew up in the Deep South, so it's like, not Deep, Deep South, but sure. you know, in North um, Carolina. Yeah, in very backwoods town. Mm. Uh, there were still KKK rallies in my town. Wow, wow. Now, of course, now everybody's realizing, <coughs> oh, white supremacy has been going on all this time. Sure. Right. Some people just weren't, didn't, you know, just didn't know how to address it, or it wasn't, people weren't so brazen with it. Yeah. So I'm happy to be in California in the bluer state. Yeah. And to me, the thing about the impeachment and, and Trump is that the whole idea of it being a trial, even in a trial, like, you know, if you had a jury that said, oh, I, I'm actually, if, if a judge asked a jury, like, can you vote uh, impartial or can you make a decision That's impartial? Right, an impartial decision, yeah. Then, and they said no. <coughs> right. They would they, instantly they, get thrown out. Yeah. And literally every single person there, both Republican and I'm sure many Democrats, mm-hmm. are kind of saying, uh, no, that we, they've already said, no, we're not going to yeah. uh, actually um, kick him out of office. So, uh, I, But then again, I don't understand how a trial in the Senate could be not political, like how they could become impartial jurors. So maybe it's not set up the way it's set up. The Founding Fathers set it up was was not to be impartial. That, to me, kind of blows my mind that yeah. in any other setting for, like, a court case yeah. or a trial, it would be impartial. Impartialness there'll, there'll is key. There will be key. an impartial jury. It's yeah. key mm-hmm. to, like, that process. So yeah. And I know you work in law, so. Well, yeah, I mean, this is constitutional law. It's yeah. different from criminal law. And you have a Senate who is sort of a, the jury but also um, – I forget what other – well, I guess the Supreme Court, you know, gets to decide what evidence is evidentiary and Chief what Ju- isn't. And Chief Justice <coughs> presides right. over it. Yeah, isn't that it? Uh, I think so yeah. because uh, they can't have Pence. Pence is technically the right. president the of the Senate. That's right. You know, we can't have right. him. But essentially the House can present to the Supreme Court, hey, this is the evidence that we have against Trump. Mm-hmm. And they can decide whether it's evidentiary, where it's right. thrown out or not. That's yeah. the same thing that happened in, with um, – with Nixon, mm. with the, mm-hmm. the whole tapes. You know, they right. were like, you know, uh, I think a guy named Butterfield had said, hey, they're tapes. And the Supreme Court was like, hey, you have to give up the tapes. And Nixon was like, well, we'll give you a redacted version. Mm-hmm. And right. the Supreme Court was like, no, 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 you can't do that. You have right. to submit everything. And when he didn't, that gave the Senate, okay, this is 
this is not right. Yeah. And but you know they were set to remove him from office, and of course he resigned. He resigned that. before because he didn't want to be impeached. Right. right. And because uh, he didn't want to be, in, or sorry, he didn't want to be. Um, yeah, impeached and thrown out. Or thrown out. Whereas it's just totally different these days. Yeah. It, you know, and the the Supreme Court's always been politicized because they're appointed by a political person, but nowadays it's so. It's gotten really to Ooh. the extreme. It's gotten really extreme, and it's very intense and scary and just yeah. kind of like, I'm just bracing myself for another four years. Mm. Oh, really? Because You're not optimistic? I'm, mm-hmm. I, I'm, I would love to be optimistic, but I, you know, and I, but I think there's so many people that don't vote. You know, it's like it just doesn't there's, – there's so many, so many uh, hardline party Republicans that – that is that live in the same bubble that a lot of us do in the Bay Area. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. In a different way, in a different way, and they're <coughs> just they're just like we don't know what you're talking about. This is we're gonna vote. Yeah, how we want to, and you so know, yeah, it is interesting how in the, I, I don't know where it began, but there's such extremism on both sides have sort of taken over the party. Yeah, and we've talked about yeah. that in in the past. Well, we were t- we were talking about how both it, sides. I don't know. Well, I, I don't see it so much on the Democrat side. Of course, right. we're biased, but uh, yeah. we definitely see it on the Republican side. I mean, I've never had a problem with moderate Republicans like yeah. Romney and what they call the uh, the Rockefeller Republicans. They weren't racist. Mm-hmm. Uh, they weren't overtly misogynist. They were like, hey, listen, we just care about the um, the money. The we care about our and, 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 and not having the government uh, be uh, too involved in our lives. Right, right. You know, the whole state's rights, you know, which began with uh, Jefferson. Jefferson was like, hey, listen, that's what separated him from uh, uh, Alexander Hamilton, who Mm -hmm. was a federalist. Mm -hmm. He was like, hey, you know, you need to have the big boys and the federal government control what's going on. And Jefferson was like, no, 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 states can do it all by its own. Of course, Jefferson had no way of knowing Mm -hmm. that these states would, you know, undermine the rights of their own people, especially minorities. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, that's where we are. So it sounds like the extremists have taken over. We can move yeah. on to other um, – oh. uh, Something else that got pointed out yes. this week is yes. that all of the <coughs> beauty contests are black. Yeah. First time in <laughs> Miss USA, Miss Teen USA, Miss Universe. All the winners? All, all the winners are, are African-American. American. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What do you guys think? I mean, not, not African-American, but, but black. It's bizarre. Yeah. yeah. No, well, I mean, it, I think it's wow. cool. I think uh, I want to have a, uh, you know, we had a guest, and she dropped out. This is uh, Angel. I forget her last right. name. Mm-hmm. And she's African-American, and I wanted to get her perspective to see mm-hmm. whether it was a progressive thing or whether it was just a little cracker, you know, mm-hmm. here. Ah. You know, pat, pat, pat. But I'm also noticing something else with cinema. There have been so many leading ladies Joker, um, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, where mm. the leading ladies are black. Oh, <coughs> I didn't know. Even um, The us. new uh, yeah. show on, uh, I think it's on Netflix, uh, HBO, Watchmen. Watchmen. Yeah. 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 That's right. She's black as well. Well, not just that, the storyline. Yeah. And it has freaked people out because they've basically <laughs> taken the African-American history uh-huh. and turned it into the story. Oh, maybe like, uh, uh, they yeah. a dystopian, I mean, not dystopian, but an alternate history. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It was basically, a, and the comic itself was, a, you know, very, and I mean, written by one of the famous yeah. Most well-known anarchist in the world, Alan, Alan Moore. Yeah, right. Alan Moore, yeah. yeah. And he's, you know, a, a British white anarchist. And Dave right. Gibbons, and I believe American, um, another white um, comic book artist. Mm-hmm. And their work is so subversive that it – I just finished watching the series mm-hmm. and had been a fan of the comic. It was so <coughs> subversive that it was like – it was about 
I mean, we had no spoilers here, but it was incredible how that entire story was based around that. Mm-hmm. And there's so many spoilers I want to give away right now because uh, it's so <laughs> well, that's I, I, I really incredible it, people. I've been curious because I've read so much positive press. I'm like, oh, I might have to see this. It's a, it's, it's a very – I don't want to say it's a trend, but that has become – seems to be more common in uh, not like blockbuster, blockbuster, like mm-hmm. high-level yeah. movies. You, you still only have like Black Panther and sure. Moonlight and a few yeah. other films winning yeah. Best Picture. but. In smaller or mid-sized, right. yeah, uh, not even Screens. independent, but uh, right, yeah, it's it's not uncommon now to have not just um, uh, black leading male characters, but black female characters, sure, yeah, which was like yeah, not common at all. And there's me. always been a balance, and I could even say that w- as far as uh, Asian American uh, actresses, you mm-hmm. know, there's been a big boon in that. Right. I always wonder, especially in the theater, we could tie it into theater, where we want to have minority, you know. As African-Americans, we're going to have minority roles. But we want to have a storyline that fits with our storyline. We don't just yeah. want to have, you know, sort of a token role. Oh, oh we've got to have a black person I in here. Um, <laughs> six degrees separation. Oh, yeah. The person who fakes to be the son of Sidney Poitier, yes, I think. Yeah, he does. And, um, and that character, except for the last scene, is so two-dimensional, it's not funny. Yeah, I imagine if I were gay, because he's gay too, right? I think so, yes. Yeah. But and um, it just it's really, I mean, what's what's neat about the play is it's not clear who or what he is, mm-hmm. the projections of the people dealing with him, but that's really where the play lives, yeah. is in their telling their story, not so much his story. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, and it's a problem that I have with the help as well. It's like you get a black perspective, mm-hmm. but from a so white lens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you have that. Going yeah, on. We I went from holidays to race politics. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> I, uh, you know, I just, I, well, I just I was in New York uh, last month mm-hmm. um, and was able to see the new Oklahoma revival. Mm. Ah, that's right. I don't know if either of you guys mm-hmm. saw it or make it mm-hmm. New York, but I've heard a lot of news about it. How multiracial uh, it, it was, is. It was very uh, much more diverse cast than is yeah. normally seen with Oklahoma mm-hmm. or most of Broadway. Yeah, and um, the leading lady was um, oh, a really? woman of color. Curly is, uh, I believe, a person of color. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure what they identify as. Sure. Um, and then there are other diverse cast members too. And the uh, Dream Laurie. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm assuming you guys know the show. Mm-hmm. Um, the Dream really? Laurie, who dances the Dream Ballet, uh, oh. uh, also was a black woman, and they did. The director did something. S- they did something so interesting. They did not change one note of the score or one piece of text, mm-hmm. but it was staged in a way that was very. There were very ma- many abstract moments, but where they just gave a lot of credence and space to the actors themselves mm-hmm. had the fir- uh, you know Ali Stroker was uh, won the um, Tony Award for a supporting actress first um, mm. actor with a disability uh-huh. to win a Tony nice. Award mm-hmm. plays Edo Annie mm. um, and it simultaneously embraces her um, disability right. and also doesn't have anything to do with it you right. know it's like it, it, mm-hmm. it, it that sort of theater is uh, not is still Sadly, uncommon on Broadway, but becoming right. more common, it seems mm-hmm. like. And, um, you know, people are uh, – um, directors and producers are more aware of the optics yeah. right, of that yeah. and how important that is and mm-hmm. how you can also not use that in a – like you said, not like a to- 
tokenistic sort of way, but right. rather e exactly, exactly. I think about Audra McDonald, who who played. She was in One Ten in the Shade, uh -huh. and she played. If you know that, that's the musical version of uh, Oh, what is it? The Rainmaker. The Rainmaker, yeah. Uh, where and you know it's, it's uh, very. If you know the play, it's basically a white uh, far, uh, farm town of family in the Midwest. Right. And this huckster comes in. Right. Uh, this is the Dust Bowl, and he's right. like, I'm yeah. going to make it rain and all that sort of stuff. Miracle worker, yeah. Yeah, yeah sort of miracle right, worker. Yeah, yeah. And uh, But it's also a bit of taming of the shrew where, you know, she's sort of wild and mm -hmm. she sort of tames down or whatever. Right. And from, a, you know, having her, I she thinks she may have won a Tony for that mm -hmm. because, you know, of course she's just amazing. But it's something that you also talked about when you did um, – the Arthur Miller thing, uh, Death of a Salesman. Oh, Death of a Salesman, yes. Where I played the neighbor, Charlie. Yeah, exactly, oh, wow. and from a black perspective, and you bring. You can't help. I mean, I mean, the story, so the play is beautiful in that it takes place in like 24 hours, but in it are all these flashbacks, and they're not dreams. I mean, they are at least a perspective on things that have happened in the past. So you keep going back and forth. But the neighbor keeps appearing, which means that he's been his neighbor for decades. And I'm like, oh, my God. So wait a minute. I'm an old black man who's been living next to this white man through the last 40 years of American history? Yeah. Okay. Um, things have changed a lot in that time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it, it really colors who that man is, that neighbor, yeah. without having to add anything to the play, just – the dynamic of the characters it was it was mm -hmm. it was so and fun it, and it gives a new the audience a new perspective on how to yeah. wa to watch it because yeah. it's like you know what you were saying if you're a neighbor who's been living with Willie Loman yeah. as a black person right you could bring all sorts of perspectives right. and the audience will look at it in a completely different way it also gives to to Willie's credit mm -hmm. it gives a little more on the positive side sure. because Willie would have been that stand-up guy mm -hmm. way back in the day who didn't make any differentiation about it, who exactly. my yeah. it, it adds three-dimensionality to everyone. Um, yeah. Now, and Red, didn't you – I remember seeing you at Douglas Morrison Theater. Didn't you play Starbuck? Yeah, that's right. I was yeah. a black Starbuck. Well, how, how was it? Because <laughs> it's – you know, musical theater to me is mm -hmm. so much about the – the outsider, you mm -hmm. have a community, sure. you have an outsider, right. yeah. and they're either accepted or rejected. Right. Uh, you know, how, how was that uh, as a black actor? Well, that was that was good. You know, I talked about how it, the 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 piece struggled because I had problems with uh, the, basically the person who was my love interest. Mm -hmm. um, she was just coming out of school, uh, a wonderful actress, but I think she had. I mean, I'm not going to mention her name. But sure. we didn't gel very well. We could have talked about all of these wonderful perspectives and mm -hmm. how to approach. And you're absolutely right. Being a black outsider, mm -hmm. it's fascinating because not only was I the African-American person, but there were yeah. also the African-American community. Right. Anju Ippolit mm -hmm. was in okay. the chorus as well as uh, Asian-American, Asian, Asian Tian Kai. Mm -hmm. who was from China. We actually okay. had him on the yay. Mm -hmm. wow. So I think it was a conscientious choice by, I want to say, I forget, I think it was Nancy Engel who directed that. Oh, uh -huh. But she wanted to have a multicultural community, mm -hmm. not just an all-white community. Right. I, I would have I looked at it exactly that way, like, yeah. oh, wow, I'm coming into this white community. I've got to convince them that I can make it rain. How are they going to listen to me? Right, right. Uh, it, it wasn't like that. And obviously my bond with Avi Jacobson mm -hmm. was so, so tight. Mm -hmm. uh, and you can feel that on the stage. I wish I had that with the leading actress. But she was a young actress, and she 
she had designs on who Starbucks should be, and I wasn't. I didn't fit that bill. Right. Well, that's um, the challenge with all this because you talk about not getting to discuss mm -hmm. and to deal with these concepts. In Death of a Salesman, we never discussed mm -hmm. in that in those terms. Maybe in a rehearsal where it was just the two of us working out our little scenes. Mm -hmm. Um, but not as a group But not as a group and not yeah. as a concept. Um, and I think it was the director's concept that he didn't feel a need to, you know, to introduce into the mix. Mm -hmm. And I think the danger with all this is otherwise you get all these plays that are just these issue plays and we're all tired of being preached at and we're all tired of sure. having stuff pushed if in our face. If it naturally fits, then I think it's fine. If you, right. If you can find the natural dynamic of mm -hmm. this, yeah. one that we as an audience can relate to, that – recognize and relate to or yeah. if we don't recognize it we're drawn into it yeah. in a way that still fits within the, the story the narrative yeah that's the best yeah you know it's funny mentioning a one ten in the shade we had danny martin on who's yes. a fantastic actor yep. um he really brought in the vibe because he was the white and you know mm -hmm. he's a uh, six foot whatever right. um looks like he's right from out out of you know he's almost central casting Right. the Wild West. Yep, yep. He really did have an anger. It's like, hey, my sister can't be messing around with this guy Starbuck. Mm -hmm. And you can easily read that into mm -hmm. the whole race thing. Yeah. And it worked. Right. You know, it was an energy that we needed. Uh, something for her to sort of, you know, talk, you know, to, to tangle, to deal with. It adds more potential redemption, too. Sure. Yes. Which, again, yep. an another aspect of musical theater that to me is not just about community and outsider, but the most, the best thing about musical theater, whether it's ends up with more tragic mm -hmm. in the end, but right. the thing that's that's the way that it functions differently than most plays mm -hmm. is that there is always, almost always, that element of redemption. Right. Yes. And and not always, you know, it doesn't mean that it's always has a happy ending, but just no. that uh, some character is uh, is redeemed, and when you can add in. You know, the issue of redemption with mm -hmm. race can make things can make can bring out that sure yeah. so much more. Yeah, I always use um, my in when I was to school. They talked about catharsis, sure, yes. especially when it comes to tragedy. You know, the the uh, the protagonist yeah. and the audience must have a catharsis, whether right. he goes yes. down in defeat or whether he's learned something. You know, yeah. there's there's a resolution. Yeah, no, yeah. I never thought about it. In thanks for that musical theater, putting musical theater in those terms because it is like Porgy and Bess. I hate the ending of Porgy and Bess. Right, where he's like, well, I'm going to go after, I'm just going to get up and drag myself and my car. But the chorus is there going, yeah, yes. yeah. And it's like, no, this story is not, <laughs> go for it, dude. Right. But good God, if I had to bet money right now, <laughs> yeah. I'd be betting on you. Yeah, um, but there's there's something about Porgy's character that is um, enabled. Mm -hmm. Sorry, enabled is actually not the right word because we're talking about that a lot. But <laughs> I know. <laughs> sorry, okay. I'm sorry that. I liked it, though. <laughs> even empowerment is tricky because it's like one person with power and they give it to this other character. But as also a person with disability, it's so – it's interesting. And I, I, I struggled with that, too, mm -hmm. uh, with that play until I realized, okay, there is the authors, albeit two you know, white Jewish sure. authors, coming mm -hmm. down to the South um, – I do love how the only two white characters in that play don't sing. <laughs> the policeman and like right. his accomplice come in and they just speak something. Mm -hmm. um, so interesting that Gershwin was aware of that back right. then. Yeah. Um, but still, it's still Well, no, but it's satisfying complex. on that level. You're right. It gives us a sense of, like, this isn't the end of the story and this isn't, you know, because 
you know, I think a bad musical is the sort of happy ending where you feel like it's a resolution. It's more life is, doesn't go that way. You have a good day. <laughs> but it's complex. And it's yes, a good it, day. But there's more. Yeah, life is more complex than that. Yeah. And the, the Oklahoma uh, revival, mm-hmm. Oklahoma itself, based off Green Grow the Lilacs, an old Lynn Riggs play, mm-hmm. um, it ends with Curly in jail on his wedding night, and they're, you know, not sure whether to let him have the trial or not or let him go. Mm-hmm. The musical, Rodgers and Hammerstein turned it into more of a, all right, let's, um, uh, let's have, let's like tie a ribbon or put a sure. bow around it. Yeah. But this most recent revival, they have, spoiler alert for anybody who's thinking of going to see this mm-hmm. listening, to thinking of going to see the revival, which I do highly recommend. Don't listen for this next second. <laughs> <laughs> so Judd uh, yeah, um, yeah. is comes back to the wedding. You know, they sing the title song. Mm-hmm. Judd comes back and he uh, gives a present to the uh, to the groom and he says, I want to kiss the bride. Mm-hmm. And he goes and kisses Laurie and it's like just you can hear a pin drop in the theater. Mm-hmm. It was very, very um, soberly played and not like he was mm-hmm. drunk and they actually had this complex interaction. Right. And then the gift that he gave Curly mm-hmm. was a revolver. Mm. And instead of having them fight and struggle and he fell on his knife, uh, they played it where Curly took the gun and shot him. Wow. And mm. so it was like, to me, I found that, uh, you know, it's a much more ab- abstract way to go with it. Sure. Um, and there's some classicists who were like, well, that's, I know that's, Technically, right. they're not going against the text, mm-hmm. but it had this element of uh, Judd uh, being like, "Hey, I don't have anything left to live for." Right. And right. then, not only that, but they had the blood splattered all over Curly. So for the rest of the entire show, right. both the wedding moment and the reprise, like the curtain call bow, mm-hmm. everyone sort of soberly singing it, and Curly and Laurie, I think, who was next to him, are just covered in blood. Sure. And so it's like. Well, we have this blood on our hands. Uh, it, w- it was. It was. Wow. I'll tell you what. Whether you like it or don't like it or disagree mm-hmm. with or agree with the interpretation, you'll never forget it. Wow. <laughs> I'll, ne- I'll never forget that. And yeah. I, yeah, I, d- I did my th- master's thesis at UC Davis on Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. Wow. And um, I not. Yeah, and so I cared about the work deeply. Right. Mm-hmm. And also found it problematic at times. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't s- done it or seen it since. You know, it's been like 10 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we did a very classic production, but with um, uh, with a great director, Mindy Cooper, who mm-hmm. has done some stuff in the Bay Area and in New York. And she's really brilliant. And although it was still very sort of classic. So mm-hmm. to see something so strictly adhered to in terms of text and – Yet so wildly interpreted mm-hmm. was very cathartic. Yeah, <laughs> it's very no, very memorable. Two quick things that we don't even sure. have to talk about. We can go right into because you know I mean I love it when we dive into a thing and uh, we just well, go into I mean the this core is really of making depth. theater. I mean, <laughs> especially with the, the the perspective you gave on musical theater, I can't help but think that. Yeah. And, and then to add it to catharsis because that's where my brain went. I'm like, mm-hmm. this is totally the stepping from the chorus. Giving the audience this experience. This yes. is what we're Ab- talking about. Absolutely, and I have tons and tons of questions. The last two current events, really, and I'll just throw about there, and if we don't talk about it ever again, we can jump right into origin stories. Nigerian American Kamaru Usman. 
this gets into um, UFC fighting. Oh, okay. So basically, this loudmouth, uh, Colby Covington, uh, this MAGA Trump-loving guy, was like, oh. I'm going to beat this dude. Mm-hmm. He was a Nigerian-American. Um, sure. Born in Nigeria, came to the United States, I think, at age eight, mm-hmm. and worked his way up. And, you know, a nice American story. But in any case, this loudmouth was like, I'm not going to beat this dude. I'm going to win my title. I'm going to bring the belt to Trump. Spoiler alert, uh, he got his butt kicked. He had his jaw broken uh, and had to go to the hospital. Wow. (laughs) And the Nigerian-American basically was like, hey, listen, I just want to say that I love America, and America is – I mean, it was a wonderful speech that he gave about diversity. And And he should bring his belt. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And the second thing is – so YouTube – so there's a young girl who has earned $26 million. The eight-year-old. Exactly. The eight-year-old, a YouTube influencer, I think, from India. Yes, yes. It's amazing how... She's doing um, uh, reviews, a toy. Yeah, I think it's a a boy. Or he. Yeah. Toy reviews. No way. Toy reviews. It's it's amazing. I don't know how these kids... $26 million in, like, ads from their YouTube channel? Yeah. I guess, yeah. And he's doing television shows, and he's... Uh, I don't know how how he does. Apparently, he's been doing it for a couple right, of years. I, I would assume, <laughs> but yeah, that's where we live now, and it's you know, you know, even that notion of a social media influencer, like, yeah, okay, this wasn't even a concept <laughs> a few years ago, and now and it's pretty much dominated. And now by it's an occupation. It's dominated by millennials. It's dominated by post millennials. Well, that oh, makes yeah. sense. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah, it's it is both kind of frightening and weird to for to see this mm-hmm. process because it feels like. You know, the world of marketing and advertising is like, that's always been such a huge mm-hmm. uh, element of media and driving force. Right. But for all of us to see like, oh, well, this just started as somebody's social media mm-hmm. channel that they had. And then it became this is seeing that rise in stardom and that mm-hmm. is uh, weird and kind yeah. of bizarre and scary and it's it's futuristic in a way mm-hmm. yeah the sort of a like a, a chain chain reaction that you know a lot of people didn't even recognize like even the folks who created youtube mm-hmm. i think in 2006 right. Oh, yeah. right. they were just doing it i read the history of it so w- the super bowl when janet jackson had oh, her, yeah. you know the yeah. wardrobe malfunction oh the, these guys who are like oh you got to see this video but how do we show it to people so they created youtube really oh, only wow to post it up and to show it to their friends. Sure. Yeah. But other people saw it, and all of a sudden they started getting traffic. And they were right. like, well, what else can we post up? I right. like how Facebook was originally just for Harvard University. and then it Yeah, exactly. Right. I remember when, when I was in college, and I was like, oh, cool, our college got Facebook. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yeah, mm-hmm. I was at Chapel Hill. <laughs> as an undergrad, and it must have been 2001. Yeah. I was on MySpace. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Friendster right. beta. Right. Yeah, <laughs> I, remember, I remember that. I remember that. <laughs> and it was, you know, just for fun, I'd, mm-hmm. you know. And then... Uh, I had a, a good friend from a high school went to Harvard, and he was mentioning something about Facebook mm-hmm. over c- holiday break. And then the next semester, it was like Chapel Hill was you know awarded to Facebook. Uh, and then I remember being then when I was finishing college, they were in the news. It was like they're going to open it up to high school students now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of like, oh, that's you know, I thought it was just for college students. <laughs> Wow. So and, it's, and it's amazing how it's grown. And now it's uh, – they're making their own operating system now. I just read that they don't – they're tired of you having to use Android. Yeah. I mean, they're and doing so all sorts of stuff. I mean, now there's Facebook dating. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. And, and money, money coming soon. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. exactly. With that, let's have an uh, origin story. <laughs> Dave Moshler. Mm-hmm. And there is an umlaut on the O. 
I believe that's called an umlaut. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well. Um, so tell us where you – I mean, I know a lot of this, but, you know, you could tell the folks on and uh, in, in who's listening. Uh, where are you from, and how did you get involved in theater? Uh, well, I grew up on a cattle farm in Virginia. Wow. Um, I was very young, obviously, but um, mm. uh, moved away from uh, to North Carolina when I was about three or four. Yeah. What part of North Carolina? Raleigh? Uh, no, south of Charlotte, right okay. near the border with South Carolina. Mm-hmm. And uh, as I mentioned earlier in the episode – rather conservative small town called Kings Mountain mm. um, and uh, I grew up there I uh, have three siblings two older one younger they're all still on the east coast okay and I wouldn't say we were a particularly artistic family but my older brother was in uh, high school band okay and my older sister did theater also and so I kind of followed suit and I started uh, playing tuba and band my younger brother played flute and was also a very good actor and um, I went up to this high school in uh, the last two years, mm-hmm. junior and senior year, called the North Carolina School of Science and Math. Oh, wow. And it's a public residential high school. Hmm. Um, it's a sister school with North Carolina School for the Arts, which is a college, too. But this was mm-hmm. just junior and senior year. And it had only been around since the early 80s. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a public residential high school, but for students really into mathematics and science, mm-hmm. uh, which I was at that time. And so if you got in... You had free tuition, and you got to uh, you lived there on campus. It was kind of like Hogwarts mm-hmm. for scientists, mm-hmm. scientists um, like teenagers. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I met some of my best friends. I'm still in touch with a lot of them every week. They live all over the country and world. Very small class, just about 200 students each class. Mm-hmm. And our teachers were all professors. Um, but the cool thing was, it wasn't just the uh, you know like the math and science classes that we got to take. Uh, they had really really amazing teachers that did uh, 20th century novels and literature. Um, there was a weird class, Wisdom, Revelation, Reason, and Doubt. Mm. Um, you know, our textbooks were, you know, A People's History of the United States, which was, you know, pretty mind-blowing for a 16-year-old white guy growing up in a small town. Mm-hmm. And so I moved to Durham uh, and, you know, played in the band there and everything. And our junior year, uh, I had been a techie all through high school ah. backstage because my dad yeah. was kind of a, a Carpenter, farmer, worked at a hardware store, mechanic. Mm-hmm. So, so I was building flats and stuff. I was building flats, and I was like, I know how to use a power tool. So, mm-hmm. you know, and all, and my friends were all techies. Mm-hmm. And then they were doing a musical. They were doing The Wiz. Oh. And they said, well, Dave, don't we thought you'd want to play in the pit for this. And I was like, I can play in the pit. And, you know, there's no tuba part, but I've been playing bass. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was just like uh, the light bulb went off in so my head, and I just mm-hmm. – I just got bit by the bug really hard. So this is the Wiz. This is like the black version this of the Wiz. This is the Wiz, wow. yeah. And we had a pretty diverse school because they were mandated by the state to have students from all over and mm-hmm. uh, certain quotas and everything. So it was a very diverse student population. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't an all-black Wiz, but it was a, uh, a Hawaiian Pacific Islander lion. <laughs> we had a black scarecrow and a black tin man. Uh, we had a white Dorothy, and we had um, – uh, the diverse rest of the cast, too. Yeah, that's not So bad. it wasn't an all-black one, but it was student-directed, <coughs> mm-hmm. and we had the school orchestra and the pit and everything. And um, uh, my best friend, who um, was a drummer, Beirut Mostafavi, who was um, Iranian, uh, was like, I was like, I don't know. Are you going to do it? And he's like, this is going to be the best thing ever. We're going to start a band, <laughs> and then we'll, be at, we'll, we'll take our jazz band, and then we'll be the band for The Wiz, and it'll be amazing. And his enthusiasm just – 
uh, it just was infectious. Wow. And uh, he's if he's out there listening, you know, Beirut, um, <laughs> he still lives in North Carolina. He's an audio engineer now. Yeah. And computer engineer, but he, uh, thank you for getting me <laughs> into that. Nice. I did have a quick question for yeah. you, and it's something that I asked. Um, we had um, the Playwright Center for San Francisco. Who's the guy who runs that? Um, Charlie, Charlie Charlie Larigo, mm-hmm. because he's from Alabama, and I had asked Charlie, oh. how do you grow up in a conservative, uh, almost very red, you know, ring community, yet still be liberal? I mean, you know, was there like a protective bubble? Well, I think of it as uh, in two ways. Um, as somebody who grew up in a very conservative town, but my family was not super liberal the whole time. But mm-hmm. um, you know, my dad voted Republican for a long time. My mom always kind of voted Democrat. And their town that, that I was born in, Chatham, Virginia, was, you know, it was like 5,000 people, very, very small, very, very conservative. Mm-hmm. I think of it as two things. You either completely embrace it mm-hmm. uh, or you're like, okay, wow, this it doesn't fit with me. So you reject it. It's, it's sort of like you either end up exactly like your parents or you take a totally different path. It's, it's yeah. rare to sort of have a random in, in between. You know, I don't have much data on this necessarily, sure, but sure, it, sure. in my life experience, it seems to be that way. So our family, you know, w- we were always getting in trouble. We were always – our parents just instilled in us, like, um, you know, they were kind people, and they were, like, try and be as kind as possible to everyone you come across. Yeah. And um, they believed in science, and they believed in the power of community, and um, – you know, over time, it was just slow shifting. I, when I found the Unitarian Universalist Church, which, you know, um, preaches a lot of those things, mm-hmm. um, I went to it because of a camp. And there was a youth group associated with the camp, and I had no I- idea about it. But then my family, my parents started going. They're like, this sounds pretty cool. Mm-hmm. This fits us a little better than the, you know, fairly racist, whitewashed Baptist <laughs> churches down there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, then the f- and then the family started going, and then my dad's sisters started going in other states and a bunch of my mom's uh, sisters started going so mm-hmm. we kind of backwardsly found it rather than receiving it from the parents and um, it was a good fit for the Meshler family and you know Durham moving to Durham North Carolina which is more similar to Oakland sure you know there's a black middle class mm-hmm. there's um, still um, you know Duke University there and everything yeah uh, I was there during the lacrosse team scandal um, oh, I think I remember this. Um, yeah, yeah. It, we don't need to go into that now. Sure. But it, <laughs> as a whole, not a, a current event, but um, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. There, there. At this school I went to, the, uh, there was not a protective bubble, but all of a sudden it was like, "Hey, look at all these ideas and other cultures and other ways to think mm-hmm. of things." Yeah, that emboldened that seed of distrust that I had growing up or feeling like, you know, I was just an outsider. I was bullied a lot as a kid. And oh, I was that. fine. I mean, you know, yeah. I still, um, it, it could have been a lot worse, but yeah. I was, um, you know, only had a couple handful of friends in my hometown growing up and yeah. mostly band geeks and, and theater people. And so, you know, um, and then, you know, as what does Armistead Melfin say, the author who wrote Tales of the City, mm-hmm. he says, you know, out here in San Francisco, we may not be your um, biological family, but we're your logical family. Uh, I nice. love that. I love Which that. is great. So. But, it, but it's fantastic that your family, it sounds like they were very much into the arts. When I talk to, you know, we've had guests on the yay, and they, you know, sometimes their parents will say, no, 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 you got, you, have to, you can't get into the arts. You know, you have to get into. You've got to get a real job. You have to get a real job, and you have to focus on that. But and I've always felt that arts sort of embraces uh, multiculturalism, and it opens Absolutely. the mind. Well, what's funny is that I didn't embrace it as an actual career until – 
graduate school. I went to when I went to undergrad. I had gone to this high school for science <coughs> and math mm-hmm. with the intent on going to college also mm-hmm. as a scientist. And so my bachelor's degree is actually in astrophysics at wow. Chapel Hill. Yeah. <laughs> so I was hardcore into it. I went and did research. I would go off to observatories and mm-hmm. look at telescopes and spend the, you know stay up all night. Um, nothing super sophisticated, but you know it was uh, it was my thing. I loved it. Mm-hmm. Um, but something happened in college. Uh, over time, my GPA in, in physics was going down, mm-hmm. and my I was doing a double major in music, and I had found all these student theater groups, mm-hmm. and it just was like <coughs> I couldn't say no to any of this. Uh, you know, I, I started conducting and music directing them. So mm-hmm. I, you know, I just wanted to play in the pit. At for my first show was. Music directing was called The Goodbye Girl, an old Marvin Hamlish, Ed Cleveland show. Yeah, mm-hmm. I've heard of it, yeah. Um, terrible show. It was just a star pe- <laughs> vehicle for Bernadette Peters and um, uh, who's Dick the guy? Um, no, who's the guy with um, Martin Short? Yeah. Uh, oh. From Saturday Night Live in the early 90s. And it was a total industry show, you know, all yeah. these inside jokes. Terrible show. But they were. I said, hey, uh, Company Carolina, you know, like the Chapel Hill student group, I said, I w- do you have any – I want to play in your pits. And they're like, oh. We're looking for a music director. Do you want a music director? And I said, sure. What's that mean? I didn't mm-hmm. even know what it meant. Wow. Mm-hmm. <coughs> and then um, really got bit by the bug and did a bunch of shows in college, started studying conducting. By the time college was done, I uh, to get back to the origin story, Yeah. Uh, you know, I had this degree in physics barely, mm-hmm. barely made it through, and uh, sort of realized um, – you know, I, I think I might want to do grad school in music. I think I want to, like, study conducting for real, uh, both classically and also for theater stuff. And I had this guy come and give a talk at a summer camp that I was a counselor at, mm-hmm. um, also for arts and science stuff at different, called Governor's School. And this guy came and gave a talk, and he said, I was with my physics students. And I said, you know, how did you choose? He was a really young string theorist, which is very complex, um, you know, higher mathematics, uh, mm-hmm. theoretical physics. Mm-hmm. So how did you choose this? How did you figure out you wanted to do this at such a young age? Uh, he said, well, every job, no matter what you do, mm-hmm. has, you know, like really exciting parts and that's like, uh, that are really fun that you love. Like usually mm-hmm. like that's probably 10% of the time, mm-hmm. whether it's performing or um, – you know, directing or anything, uh, you know, or getting a paper published as a scientist giving a talk. And then the rest of your job, about 90% of the time, is very menial stuff. It's grading papers. It's mm-hmm. taking out the trash. It's writing rehearsal reports. It's mm-hmm. being in the lab, whatever it is, you know. And he says, everybody loves that 10%. But if you find a job where you like that 90%, you're going to be happy the rest of your life. Mm. There you go. Or you're going to love your job 100% of the time. And, again, uh, like a bomb went off in my head, and I said, wow. In, in, in physics and astronomy, very exciting to go to an observatory, stay up all night for a week, and look up through a telescope. And the other 51 weeks of the year, I was trying to learn how to shell script in Unix by myself, <laughs> which I was not very good at, mm-hmm. analyzing data by myself. Mm-hmm. Theater. Performing, great, really fun. Love sharing with audience. I loved being in rehearsal. You remember in Candide, like just sure. getting into the work. That's right. Uh, which was the first show for those listening that uh, where Reg and I met, mm-hmm. and one of my absolute favorite pieces. And digging into the piece, being in the room. Yeah. And that's your job, ninety percent of the <coughs> time. Score study, hiring musicians, mm-hmm. being in auditions, mm-hmm. and it was just like everything clicked. And I said, you know what? I I, I know I could make a career as a uh, uh, being in science, but 
I'll always wonder what it was like to try and go back and be a conductor. And I figure I could always go back to physics if this didn't work out. And, yeah. you know, 15, <laughs> 15 years later, I'm still doing it full time uh, in the Bay Area as a music director and grateful every day. No, mm-hmm. hey, that, that is fantastic. And um, a, a question, because we had Marianna Wolf on as well. Mm-hmm. You weren't here, Norman, mm-hmm. and we talked about conducting and sort of connecting it to theater because there are a lot of conductors who – they don't want to do theater. They want to do the big stuff, the orchestral stuff. They want yeah. to do Otello and uh, work yeah. with Pavarotti and all those folks. Did you have that uh, it urge? You know, I've always been very happy. Um, I'll say this. Uh, in opera and in the symphony hall, the conductor is God. The conductor mm-hmm. is in charge. The conductor is number one. The conductor, you know, the, Or the composer, you know. Mm-hmm. And the composer. Conductor is the one interpreting the composer's work. Mm-hmm. The composer's advocate, as they would say. Yeah. And in theater, it's a, you know a director's medium mm-hmm. or a playwright's medium, and they're in charge. Mm-hmm. And you know the music director is there for everything from the beginning, right. <coughs> pre-production to closing performance. Even the yep. director, unless they're performing right. in the show, don't get to be there. Right. Mm-hmm. You have to let go a little. Conductors, they're always there. And I loved being involved in that process from beginning to end, and I loved being number two. <laughs> I don't like it. I don't like being in charge all the time. I it's it's uh, you know it's stressful. Um, I like a collaborate. You know, musical theater especially is about collaboration and teamwork. And you're in a small family. Mm-hmm. You make a small family when you do a, when you do a show. Right. Uh, any theater. And so I've done opera, and I actually really enjoy it. But it's not in my wheelhouse so much. You know, like I've done in college, I did some of the Mozart de Ponte operas. I've done some stuff with a great company called Lamplighters that does operetta. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. I um, really love working with them. And I've worked uh, with uh, West Edge Opera, who do more, less traditional takes on things. Mm-hmm. Usually they'll say, oh, we've got this weird Philip Glass opera. Let's get Dave. Mm-hmm. You know, because <laughs> he kind of has one foot in theater <laughs> and stuff. Yeah. And um, I like those border territory pieces. <coughs> I like uh, theater companies that are doing something very classical or symphonic. We don't know how to do this. We need an orchestra. Dave. And I like when opera companies say, we're doing this weird piece that needs like a rock band and synthesizers. Mm-hmm. Let's ask Dave. I love that in-between stuff. So to answer your question, um, I don't have a huge drive to mm-hmm. do it. W- when I have done it, it's been very rewarding. Yeah. Uh, but in a different way. You know, the d- I'll look over and I'll ask the director usually, is it okay if I give a note? And they're like, this is your rehearsal, you know. And uh-huh. I'm used to the director being in charge. And, mm-hmm. uh, and um, so, yeah, I, I, I would love to do – I'd be happy to do more of it, uh, but it's um, – I particularly enjoy musical theater for that reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It really feels like you're on a team. Yeah, I hear you. I want to bring Norman in because mm-hmm. you had mentioned, David, that um, the the the, um, the advice that you got, you know, 10% is the stuff that you love and 90% is, you know, can be boring unless you really, really love it. When did you first love directing? Because you have a passion for directing, Norman. I – you know, it was more the sort of looking for something to do. Yeah. I mean, I, I did it. Um, I'd been in the Army, and when I came out, I went to community college. It was just my timing. It was the end of the summer. I could get into community college. I went mm-hmm. to community college. And I immediately walked in, and I said to the instructor – actually, no, that was when I came back. Um, I came back, and I was like I, – I was there, and then I went to CalArts for a year, and then mm-hmm. I came back, and I finished up my associate's degree. When I came back, I said, I've already had your, your acting class – um, let me take the directing class, and could I help teach the acting class? Mm-hmm. No <laughs> and, the way. Guy, and the guy gave me two acting classes. Oh, nice. Just gave wow. them to me. There you go. How was it? 
I really kind of jumped into the deep end and didn't realize <laughs> that I'd done that. But for directing, mm-hmm. took to it immediately. I was like, you know, this is the way my brain works. This is what's going on. Mm-hmm. And what I've learned over the years is, and this has come up a few times when we talk about it, mm-hmm. is much more about the communication with people, much more about letting go of what's in my head. I know where I think the production needs to go. These other people have their own ideas about how to accomplish that. And if it took me the longest time to realize if I fight with an actor to get them to do what I want, that may stick or it may not. And I saw it not stick a lot. And, and I learned that really working with middle yeah. schoolers. If I figure out what they're doing and find a way, like sort of mm-hmm. like Michael was saying, um, if I find a way to find a route – Yes. Some point of uh, that we share. Yeah. That I could say, okay, so now we're on the same page. Give me more of this, less of that, whatever, and that's we can right. make the adjustment. But let it be theirs. Mm-hmm. That seems to me to have been a much better place. No, I've I've always enjoyed it. Um, I really did sort of stumble into directing. Um, I found myself in positions where I was sort of producing and assistant directing, mm. and getting in somebody's ear. And when I finally hired somebody to direct for me. Mm-hmm. I remember grabbing this director and pulling him aside and said, so I don't see this script as a soap opera. <laughs> um, I feel like specifically this one character is a lot more dynamic than what we're getting right now. Yeah. Do you're fi- you you're agree? <laughs> mm-hmm. And the director said yes. And I said, okay, well, I'm not asking you to do anything about it today or right now, but can you at least pull that one aside? came back off of this break and said, let's do that scene again, and I want you to change this. <laughs> I was like, wow. It sounds like it reminds me, uh, so this gets into the movies Tombstone. So Tombstone was directed by one guy, but Kurt, I think it was Kurt Russell. Yeah, Kurt Russell, yeah. Immediately cut in and sort of was the pseudo-director because, you know, he had so many issues or whatever. But it, uh, this whole question I have for you, Dave mm-hmm. Moshler, um, we, I should mention we had Michael Muhammad on. Awesome. Oh. And uh, he, you know, he was fantastic. And he talked about uh, how wonderful Candide was. And I had asked him, so you have to, and this is a question I'll ask you. So you're working with actors. You're also working with singers. You're working with singers who can act. Sometimes, you know, they have an issue with acting because they don't know what beats and objectives and stuff are. Yeah. Uh, sometimes you're working with actors like me who uh, we may have learned about singing, but we don't know how, you know, we may not have the proper singing technique, you know, which is easier, which is different. Um, but also working with the director, because you have to have a partnership. You have to sort of have a, have a good relationship with all three. Yeah. It's how, which is easier, which is worse? Uh, it depends on the material, mm-hmm. and it depends on the people. It's always a case-by-case basis. But, yeah, we're, what I <coughs> tell people in... You know, if you think about uh, musical theater, to me, I've slowly realized over the years, mm-hmm. is it's a lyric-driven art form. Mm-hmm. And you think, oh well, you know, I mean, there's there, there's lyrics in almost you know any vocal music you hear, mm-hmm. but you think about opera, and it's like <coughs> it's music-driven. It takes as mm-hmm. much time mm-hmm. in an opera to say um, "I love you" as it does to say "I'm going to go mm-hmm. take out the trash." Mm-hmm. <laughs> Whereas uh, in musical theater, even with different composers and text settings. Um, in musical theater, if you don't hear the lyrics, people check out instantly. Whereas in opera, it's literally sung in languages that usually the right. audience doesn't understand. Right, right. Uh, and then, you know, there's pop music, too, and I won't go into that. But um, 
which usually places more of an emphasis on the uh, music itself. But musical theater being lyric driven, mm -hmm. uh, it so much of it is about my job is getting those lyrics across, not just getting them heard with balance, but helping figure out what makes a song work. Yeah. And I don't have all the pieces to that. I there, you know, I I think as a music director, but I love going to directors and saying, uh, how does this song for what does this song do? Why is this song here? Mm -hmm. Why does it sound this way? Right. Um, and working with them, and so I, so that knowing how to approach an actor. Okay, this is an actor who sings versus mm -hmm. a singer who acts right. versus somebody <coughs> who maybe does both. Yeah. And to your credit, Reg, you're incredibly good musician. So yeah. I, thank you. Yeah. I, I remember working with you and not having to. You know, some people that are actors, it's not that they don't have the training; it's that they have discomfort living in music. Sure. Oh, sure. And they're like. I can only think about one at a time. Mm -hmm. uh, I never found that with you personally. And there are other people who, when they're acting, they, they're always thinking about the music. They're always thinking, okay, next up is this. You know, their technique is so strong. Mm -hmm. And the job is to get them to forget about either. So they're just telling the story. <laughs> nice. So uh, I love when I'm coaching and teaching the music from the very first day, having the director there. Mm -hmm. And I love when they're staging to be there uh, as the accompanist or even just if I'm, you know, leading the rehearsal to help everyone just get on the same page it's so hard when you um when you're not in the room i remember for douglas morrison theater they had traditionally hired an accompanist a vocal director and an orchestra director mm -hmm. yeah that's and, right. and and a lot of companies <coughs> have done that and um it, it works fine when it's like a giant show or you don't have enough time but mm -hmm. you had enough time in rehearsals and for me uh it was easier yeah. To be the same person. Now, we did hire a vocal coach who was awesome because that show is so insanely difficult. Was that Pam? Yes. Pam yeah. Pam was really great to work with because when there was time to say, wow, you know, I don't have time to work with the Kunigana understudy. Sure. Um, I'm, And she was like, I got it. I'll go take care of it. Mm -hmm. um, that was fantastic. And I'm not a voice teacher. I'm more of a coach. Mm -hmm. So I don't always have the Pamela same. Hicks. We're going to have Pamela Hicks on. Yeah. She's okay, great. Cool. Yeah. Um, so I love that sense of puzzle piece fitting together and saying, mm -hmm. okay, how do we get the right cast? You don't want a cast of all singers who don't know how to act. You don't want a cast of all actors who, don't, um, who aren't comfortable living in the music. It depends mm -hmm. on the show. Candide, you did need some heavy hitters. You do need mm -hmm. some people, not just to have the range, but the musicianship. Yeah. Um, you know, Vanderdander's song. It's crazy. You can't have somebody who's going to freak out every time they get to that high note. Uh, or at least let us know they're freaking yeah, out. Yeah, a high B flat. I remember that distinctly. Oh, yeah. yeah. And you killed it every night. Um, and so I... I just, yeah, having to be the only person, going back to the, like, being the only person, like, when you're the music director, you kind of have to, you, uh, in an opera, you have to think more like a director, and yeah. the director is doing pictures, and, I mean, you know, not every time, sure. but most cases, and yeah. so I love, it's just the teamwork thing, and I, and I love, I love getting, I love getting an actor who sings, getting them really comfortable with the music and giving them the tools they need. My whole yeah. job is to just make people more comfortable and make musical decisions with them. Yeah. One of the cool things about you, David, and I think anyone who's worked with you, and we've had Jacob Bronson on as well. Wonderful. Uh, who's a fantastic oh, singer. And, um, but your, your, your ability to communicate, to talk to people, because I would figure if you're working with opera people, then there's a language that you speak with them. Exactly. Um, and with actors, like if you tell me, you know, fortissimo or you know uh, an expression that i don't understand i'm like okay i don't know what that means mm -hmm. yeah if i say exactly it's about finding the language they speak and so mm -hmm. if i say <coughs> uh, you know you're coming in early on beat three mm -hmm. they're <laughs> either not gonna know they're not gonna know or care right. as opposed to if i say you know follow the punctuation here after this phrase 
take a breath and really like mm-hmm. uh, make that discovery. Yeah. Like share that discovery with yes. the audience, mm-hmm. and that'll help you come into the music right now. And it's vice versa with a singer. Say, you know, after this phrasing, we have a we have a really long lyrical line. Really accent this word. It'll help accent the higher note on the phrase. Mm-hmm. And that sort of s- finding the language they speak, or talking to a director, yes. or choreographer the same way. You know, mm-hmm. I don't need to go in and say it's too slow. I need to say, you know, I think this is going to be hard for the orchestra to play at the tempo we need. You know, or one of my directing men- or conducting mentors always told me, like, you know, I was obsessively writing on metronome markings and everything, and still would get it wrong. I think we were doing like crazy for you or my one and only some Gershwin tap show mm-hmm. and I was like how are you nailing this every night she says I'm just washing your feet <laughs> oh! on stage, and I was like wow it's a lot simpler you just got to speak their language and you can see even though I have no dance training mm-hmm. uh, that is a language that uh, that's where our worlds intersect yeah mm-hmm. so yeah so one compliment that I'll give to you because I don't know if you remember this, but I had a, I, during the rehearsal of Candide, I had said I'm having problem. I don't not have. I don't have enough air. I don't have enough air. And I think you told me there's always enough air. <laughs> there's always, and you just said it and just dropped it like that. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, hey, I just got to, You know, I'm boom. really <laughs> grateful you remember that. And I, to give, I need to give credit to a, a vocal coach and director I've worked with a lot, who also mm-hmm. is a voice teacher, Jennifer yeah. Bozing. Mm-hmm. She. Um, yeah, I've, a lot of language f- from voice coaching I've learned from her about that. That and uh, real f- physiological stuff like we literally, if we don't have air, our lungs would collapse and we'd pass out. Of course, out. yeah. But giving people that psychological comfort of like I have air. Yep. And um, sometimes that's all people need. And and certain mm-hmm. things click and other things don't. You can talk mm-hmm. theory all day. You can talk biology. You can talk acting beats. But something mm-hmm. will click. And I like finding that thing. And then they do their thing. I have a. Really great uh, director friend who I just did, Caroline or Change With, earlier mm-hmm. this year. And um, she said at the first day of rehearsal, um, she said to every person in the room, she said, you are all, I, f- I truly believe you are all brilliant at something. You are a genius at something. And my job as director is to help show that mm-hmm. and bring that out and use that. Much like to what... Um, you were saying, Norman, about um, how to, uh, w- you know, w- the difference between fighting with an actor, getting them to do something you want, right. versus letting them do what they do best, right? right? Their what ideas, they naturally, you know. yeah, yeah, yeah. If yeah, lear- I keep being reminded: if you take that pause and just let them go, you can always get feedback. But yeah. if you fight with them right off the bat, you're just going to be struggling. Yeah, and it usually takes more time. Mm-hmm. And usually, yeah. another director friend I worked with, uh, Ben Randall, always said, you know. He said, I love actors That's when the they... the second time I've heard Ben's name in, like, 24 hours. Oh, wow. Is uh, that right? Yeah. Small world. We did the uh, last five years together, a small self-produced thing um, years ago that was very fun. We greatly, greatly um, loved that production and loved working with him. And he always said, you know, I love working with problematic actors or people who not talk back a lot but have lots of ideas. Mm-hmm. He said, it <laughs> usually means they have thought about something you haven't. <laughs> They've thought of it in some way you haven't. And so <coughs> he says, I love... Hearing from them and talking to them, and yeah, the director still kind of takes it either with a grain of salt or you know adds into what they're doing. But mm-hmm. it's just about allowing there to be space for yeah. everybody's ideas and um, and experiences. You know, which goes back to like we were talking about the issue of uh, race and casting in yeah. other shows. Like, as opposed to <coughs> saying like, okay, we're casting a person of color, but having them play a white role. Right. Yeah. Why don't we? I, it, more and more shows are saying like. Okay, let's not pretend. Let's not whitewash the character. Let's have them take 
let's have it be an Oklahoma about what it means to grow up as a woman of color right. in, in 1904 in Oklahoma Territory. Right, right, right. right. Yeah, exactly. And taking that into account. And, mm-hmm. you know. yeah. and so. what surprises people to find that there really is that history there. Yeah, absolutely. But you, you had mentioned um, <coughs> lamplighters. Huh. And I remember, so I'm, I'm kind of putting you on the spot a little, maybe. Go for it. Um, but um, one, I remember one, one, I'm sorry, one ahead, quick go thing. Ahead, go ahead. I don't want to dominate your time. It's 2 o'clock. Do you have to go? I've, I've got a few more minutes. So yeah. okay. Happy okay. to take a couple more questions. Yeah, thank Thanks. you. Yeah. Uh, and this is probably quick, hopefully quick. Uh, no, just as an actor. So I found myself, I started doing voice lessons. And I said, okay, so I'm feeling more comfortable with what I'm doing. And I see the auditions for Lamplighters. And I realize what really makes sense is folks that are familiar with that material to be coming in as opposed to me who would be coming in cold <laughs> without a huge musical vocabulary. Um, you know, if they end up casting me, somebody's going to end up working a lot <laughs> yeah. to get me up to speed <coughs> as opposed to that person who's already, you know, like Gil- Gilbert and Sullivan. Who knows the style. Or whatever. Yeah. yeah. A lot of it to me has to do with uh, we're always – Taking that into account in the in the casting room and thinking, uh, okay, what are their skill sets? What are their strengths? What are their weaknesses? And uh, how much room? How much time do we have? Mm-hmm. Um, are they known quantities? Sometimes you have sure. actors you've worked with and say, you know what, uh, it's going to be a hard rehearsal process. But this person I know, the moment they get on stage, will be solid as a rock mm-hmm. and consistent and lively and a- attentive and thoughtful mm-hmm. from the first show to closing. So. Specifically about Lamplighters, you know, uh, I've done two full productions with them, mm-hmm. and they are um, with two different directors, and they love – they're just – they're GNS nerds. They right. love yes. the material. It is in su- sacred to some of them. So, you know, mm-hmm. so, uh, others, you know, uh, less venerable but more just they're passionate about it. Sure. And they love when people come in that are like, uh, hey, we've never done this, and we want to learn. Like they're like, mm-hmm. we love this too. We want to carry on this tradition and make it work for everybody. And so, uh, it is more, you know, it it, it it sometimes is more traditional productions. But I would say to that, um, it, to, or to anyone listening, don't let that deter you for any show or any style. Mm-hmm. When you know, I've seen some of the best Shakespearean actors I've ever seen are people who are like, oh, this is my first Shakespeare. Sure. They just discovered that this heightened language, heightened prose is like, um, uh, like they just take to it. Right. And, and, and yeah. the directors love it and then run with it. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing with GNS. Like everybody is a genius at something. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and yeah, it's unlikely that people totally new to it are going to get like a leading role or something. But right. learning that style, learning how the company works and learning – Learning um, how you fit into it, what you like about it is is our job as well as, as uh, you know, trusting that a director. One thing I say to people auditioning anytime is that uh, they want to give you the job. Mm. That's right. Mm-hmm. To always remember, anybody out there <coughs> auditioning, and I've done a lot of audition coaching, a lot of master classes, a lot of workshops, and I've been behind, behind the table for, I don't know, 125 productions or something over the years. Mm-hmm. We want to give you the job. Mm-hmm. It's a s- necessary evil to do the audition and get to know somebody. But just remember, the person behind you, the table, wants to give you the job. You just have to give them the reasons. You have to show them that, you know, 
Yeah. You're somebody that they want to work with. Yeah, no, no, that's very, very important. You know, whether it's singing or just, you know, just a, an audition, they, they're they looking for someone. They're looking to be blown away. We want uh, the role to be cast. You. We yeah. want to go home. <laughs> Not that we want to precast people. You know, we want to see everybody. But, man, we, we want to yeah. give you the job. And uh, <laughs> the, the only reason you I didn't. I like that, though. We want to go home. <laughs> yeah. We, we, the yeah. only reason we didn't. Uh, so, so a lot of times the only reason you didn't get the job is because somebody else did. Right, 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 exactly. So <laughs> anyway, I'm sure you've talked about that on the show. No, 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 it's fine. It's fine, no, and, and it's, it's worth, worth re- reiterating. Yeah, reiterating. Mm-hmm. I wish we could have talked more about Awesome Orchestra itself, but you know, there's a mm-hmm. website. You'll ha- there's a link. Yeah, awesomeorchestra.org. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we hold things once a month, uh, usually. Um, they're open to anybody to come play or sing. Mm-hmm. We do stuff with chorus. We do all kinds of repertoire. We play all over Oakland, Berkeley, San Francisco, North Bay, South Bay. And it's most of our events are also free for the audience to come and listen to. Oh, very nice. It's just all about accessibility. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're getting ready to announce our quote-unquote season next year. They're, they're a little yeah. bit more loose in that. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a lot of fun stuff, a lot of orchestral music, a lot of stuff with local bands, uh, a lot of new works, musical theater and opera stuff, pieces with chorus, TV, film music, video game music, ah, everything nice. in between. Wow. I would love yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so awesomeorchestra.org. Get on our – join the listserv or follow us on social media. Yeah, and, um, and we'll have a link on the A for the Awesome Orchestra. You just click mm-hmm. on the link and you'll find out more about it. I would think that parents would love to take their kids to, you know, to hear mm-hmm. music that they don't hear on the radio all the time. Right. And also, yeah. you know, like video games. I mean, you know, I'm yeah. sure you guys do the classics as well as it's, some of the more modern it's kind of a It's kind of a petting zoo, too, like in terms of, like, you can come right up to the orchestra. You can <laughs> hang out with them. We usually nice. have free beer for the players there. Oh, cool. Very relaxed but very family-friendly. Some events are 18-plus uh, because of the licensing, liquor licensing like if we're playing at some museums after sure dark. sure but most of them are family friendly very very cool do we want to do birthdays again or we've done that it's up to um, you i only <coughs> had like two or three birthdays oh that you saved up okay yeah no, well because it was from the week before and i only had two katie meinholtz who i met through a company called round belly mm. um and they've gone on to do the folks that i've met through that have gone on to do other theater stuff and she's she was amazing and melissa loxon is a um, young Filipina, well, a Filipina. It's so funny. You know mm-hmm. somebody more than 10 years, and you're like, how long do I keep calling you young? <laughs> She's anyway, Lola. Melissa is yeah. um, a wonderful actress. Cool. Those are the only two. <coughs> and I'll r- run through mine. Uh, my cousin Tony T- uh, Tony Tatum, his birthday is today. Uh, wonderful singer-slash-actress Cynthia Lagazinski. And uh, she, uh, she and I were on stage. We did Skin of Our Teeth at the DMT. Her birthday is uh, yesterday. Also, uh, let's see. I have a woman, Rachel Campbell. I'm sure I've been on stage with her. I don't know. Mm. Uh, but in any case, her birthday uh, is Tuesday. Also, Adam Simpson, who is um, uh, he's with Off-Broadway West. And uh, he may be taking care of uh, Off-Broadway West. That would be cool. Yeah, that would be very cool. So his birthday uh, is also Tuesday. Damien Brown, we've uh, we mentioned him. Right. We, we'd love to have him on. Uh, his birthday Speaking is Speaking uh, of people who got introduced to Shakespeare and yeah, and just blew up. Yeah. Uh, his birthday is uh, Christmas. Uh, Daisy Nesky, she is a, a longtime costumer for the Douglas Morrison Theater, and also she's uh, done work at ACT as a costumer. Her birthday is Thursday, along with Anita Viramontes, who's a singer slash actress. Uh, mm-hmm. She and her sister Sheila was on the show. Mm-hmm. And 
Aquanetta Summers, we've talked about her. Her birthday is Thursday, and on Friday, a good friend of mine who graduated with me at Duke Ellington School of the Arts, Charles Dunham, Mm -hmm. his birthday is on Friday. And that is it. And uh, if I do one? Yeah, absolutely. It's my older brother's birthday today. All right. Um, (laughs) Out in Washington, D.C., and it was my birthday a few days ago. Wow. Ah. Happy, happy Happy, post. Shameless plug. Post birthday. No, no, that's fine. (laughs) And a couple of shows that are going on, we want to plug those. A New Brain uh, at the Tabard Theater. Uh, they will have a show. It opens January the 10th through the 26th. Mm-hmm. Mar- Mar- Marla Cox, a fantastic singer, uh, a soul singer, uh, will be uh, in that show. Um, oh, shucks. I, I wanted to ask you, Dave, had you had any affiliation with the Play Cafe or the Musical Cafe? No, I know people that have worked there uh, yeah. a number of years and admire what they do, but I haven't been involved with it myself. Okay, so. maybe not yet, but uh, Richard Jennings, he uh, sort of runs Musical Cafe yeah. along with uh, Jerome Gentes, and I wrote a little mini-musical, Nia. What? And, uh, <laughs> no way. Yeah, that's, uh, you'll see the little poster there. Uh, I just wrote a couple of, you know, um, R&B songs and, you know, tied, uh, wrote a couple of script, you know, screens to tie the, uh, it together. But in any case, they work with uh, budding musicians and musical songwriters yeah. together. Musical Cap is fantastic. Very cool. In any case, that's where I met Marla Cox, and she's doing a new brain at the Tabard Theater. Mm-hmm. Also, a funny thing happened on the way to the forum, that wonderful Sondheim piece. Mm-hmm. That'll uh, be done at the Custom Made Theater. I forgot that Sondheim. Early Sondheim. Yeah. yeah. I know. I <laughs> no, yeah, he's, he's great. Makes you yeah. The songs are incredible, but the uh, the show itself is sort of like a – like the score and the book and everything are like sort of – not separate, but just sure. – It doesn't have that sort of it do- uh, right. It doesn't have the yeah. feel. Yeah. yeah. I get the sense it was early. It was early Sondheim who was trying to put things together, and I think he really sort of got it together. Famously, they got all these Tony Awards for like everything in the show except for music and lyrics, <laughs> and he was super <laughs> oh, sad about that. Oh, interesting. Um, because it just sort of, you know, it was a. It's not that they don't go together. It's, it's still a fun show, but it's yeah mm-hmm. separate sort of thing. Yeah. No. It's He's interesting. In a, it was in a different league. Uh, Alan Coyne is in that, and that'll be happening at the Custom Made Theater uh, mm. in June, June the 5th through the 19th. Mm. That's next mm. year, and we'll, we'll um, promote that. Very cool. Um, uh, you've got a Monday Night Playground. Monday Night up. Playground on the 20th at Berkeley Rep. All right. And then uh, the reading, I found the date is January 12th. The title is The Lies That Bind by Victoria Irville. It'll be a reading with Three Girls uh, Theater, which is threegirls.org. Mm-hmm. The number three girls. All right. Um, yeah, those. That's what I got. Yeah, and also uh, Vinegar Tom, which is playing at the Shotgun, Shotgun Players. Yes. Uh, it ran from December the sixth. It'll stop at J- January the fifth, so you still can Ooh. watch that. Shotgun always has fantastic shows, and mm-hmm. our good friend Celia Maurice, who um, I've acted with her. She was a longtime EastEnder before EastEnders uh, oh, folded. Okay. And also, uh, she won a TBA award. Uh, she uh, off Broadway West did uh, the the uh, the birthday party. Uh, it was an it was a Pinter piece. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, in any case, Celia Maurice is in the show right now. And also, I want to uh, pump my good friend Radhika Rao. She is teaching an intro to improv class for ACT. You'll learn a lot. Oh. You'll have a lot of fun. Wow. And we'll have a link there. And also. Mm-hmm. I want to uh, – so I've written a series of one acts, uh, which I call I'm glad the, you're promoting this. The Edge. And um, it's very Twilight Zone-ish. And um, for every – basically, it'll happen in, in April. And I'll be promoting this as we do the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- every Sunday in April in 2020, right. there will be uh, for each night, each Sunday evening, 
there'll be two on acts and mm-hmm. there'll be stage readings. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've got nine of you know some of my favorite actors and Radhika Rao will be directing that, mm-hmm. and it'll be a chance to just see you know what works, what doesn't work. That's what yeah. a reading is all about. Yep. And just to uh, promote myself, so that'll be The Edge, mm-hmm. and it'll be at the Regatta Room uh, here at Embarcadero. I'm going to recommend that you come out to uh, next Monday Night Playground mm-hmm. Yeah. so you can see um, structurally what Jim does, Yeah. Uh, Jim Kleinman. I want to I check it out. Um, I, I would recommend it highly. Yeah, Lynn Aylward uh, has suggested that I uh, submit some stuff to Playground. So. Well, submitting, yes, but no, mm-hmm. I'm saying if you're running something like a series, yeah. Um, he has a great way of structuring that. One of the things I will admit that I'm thinking about is yeah. he, there's a raffle. There's mm-hmm. always a raffle, and it's often for tickets to the next show. Um, and the smart thing about that is it gets people thinking about the next show, and it also gets people to make that commitment where they might have had a wonderful time enjoying your show. They may not be thinking about coming back to seeing more. Ah, uh, very nice. And I should add, uh, The Edge, it'll be free. Okay. <coughs> All right. Dave, uh, did you enjoy yourself? I had a blast. Thank you guys for having me on. Yeah, no, uh, I've been, uh, and I'm so glad that you were uh, that you were able to come. And it's difficult getting people to come uh, to do something like this uh, during the holiday season because people are traveling and all right. that stuff. So. Well, that's our, our next one is Rico Anderson, and he's coming up from LA. Wow, to nice. see family. So uh, he's perfect. gonna he's because he was bugging. He's been bugging me about it for a while. I was like, dude, if you're in the Bay Area, let me know. <laughs> and that the first time it came up, that was the end of that conversation. Came up again, I think, towards the end of October. And I said, well, you going to be around at the holidays? And so then we started nailing down Perfect. a date. There you go. All right. Well, here's my blurb. You can find the Yay on the Apple Podcast app on all iPhones and iPads. Really, any app that you listen to your podcast, you can find us. We're on Spotify. We're on all sorts of uh, apps. So just type in the Yay and you'll find us. If you're an old stogie like me and you listen to your podcast on a laptop or a desktop. A stogie. <laughs> old stogie, yeah. That's how old I am. Um, <laughs> you can find the Yay on iTunes. Just click on the store. You're not going to buy anything. Use the search engine on the upper right-hand side. They have podcasts, and among them there will be the Yay. And also, if you're an Android user, you can use SoundCloud app or just go on the SoundCloud. Or SoundCloud.com. That's right, Spotify. There you go. Mm. The Yay was created by theater people for theater people. If you have a show you want to advertise, if you just want to advertise yourself, let us know. Hit us up on Twitter, Facebook, Snapchat, Instagram. I'm at Red Space Clay. I'm at Who's Your Hoosier. Dave, do you have a Twitter, Instagram uh, thing? Yeah, either or at website. David, at Dave, you can go to davidmeschler.com or at uh, Awesome Orchestra for Twitter and Instagram and all that on Facebook. Sweet. Fantastic. And if you're looking to, uh, to hear fantastic orchestral music or if you're looking to hire a composer, uh, I'm sorry, not a composer, uh, but a conductor. A conductor. A musical director. Please hit up uh, David Moshe. And happy, happy holidays. And we got to find a better sign-off. And we.